Welcome to Prism Presents. We're your hosts, Vivian Lee and Sophia Osborne, and you're listening to CITR 101.9 FM, broadcasting from the unceded, ancestral, and traditional land of the Musqueam peoples on UBC Vancouver campus. We're so excited to be here today for our second episode of Prism Presents, a radio show dedicated to bringing you readings and conversations with writers from around the world. If you haven't heard of Prism International, we're a quarterly literary magazine based on a UBC campus, and our mandate is to publish the best in contemporary writing and translation from Canada and from around the world. Every month, we'll be bringing you readings and interviews with the many amazing poets, fiction, and nonfiction writers who have graced Prism's pages, as well as contest judges and faculty and students from the UBC Creative Writing Program. For today's episode, we are bringing you two interviews with the writers from PRISM's new fall 2022 issue, On Stands Now. For more information and to subscribe, check out our website at prismmagazine.ca. For our next issue, PRISM International is publishing its first ever entirely Abipoc issue. We welcome submissions from writers who are Indigenous, Black, and people of color. Send us poems, stories, nonfiction, comics, translations. There's no specific theme, but if you're stuck, We love work that is rooted in place, poems that experiment with form, and stories that are honest, speculative, and dreamy. Submissions are free, and we are accepting prose, approximately 4,000 words or less, and poetry, up to four poems, to a maximum of six pages. We pay $40 per printed page of prose and $45 per printed page of poetry. Check out our website at prismmagazine.ca for more information and to submit. We hope to read your writing soon. So today, we'll be sharing readings and interviews with Wiley Ho and JT Maruyama. We really enjoyed these conversations and hope you will too. So without further ado, here is our conversation with Wiley Ho. Thank you so much for joining us, Wiley. Would you mind starting with introducing yourself? Hi, it's great to be here. It's great to meet you both. My name is Wiley Weijun Ho, and I live on the unceded territories of the Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh Nations, also known as North Vancouver. I was born in Taiwan. I moved to Canada at the age of eight and a half, (laughs) and I have been here ever since. I am a technical writer by trade, but I also, my, my first love is creative writing. I'm working on my first book. Very exciting. And I was wondering if you could read us your piece, The House, which was recently published in Prism. Love to. Thank you. The House. The house in Taiwan where I was born only half exists now, half a world from where I am today. The mansion with the curved staircase and carved newel post on which my apo used to hang her black wig at night. In the dark, Apo's black-haired ghost patrolled the sleeping house. So I refused to go down the stairs to the bathroom and peed in bed instead. Apo, who would grimace when she called for me, her youngest granddaughter, not by my name, but by my position in her traditional house, which is to say patriarchal, which is to say woman denigrating. Zuimuye, last one. Neither a nickname nor a term of affection, it was her prayer for no more girls after me. Apo spoke in Hakka, even though she knew Mandarin and knew it was what I understood. 
She was generous, but once a year, on Lunar New Year, when she would hand flat envelopes to the girls who were expected to receive her meager affections with both hands and voluble gratitude. With my head bowed, peeking up, I would still see Apo extend bloated red pockets to my brother and boy cousins. When she caught me staring, Apo's glare was how I learned I was half the worth of a boy. Why it has taken most of my life to claim the other half. I doubt Apo cared that she didn't get a chance to say goodbye to Zuimuye. When she died, I was already in Canada, so I didn't have to fake cry. They say you shouldn't speak ill of the dead, but who are they? I've spent my life fleeing from that house, but when my aging father calls and orders time to return home, my body obeys. Hurtling 10,000 kilometers from Vancouver to Taipei at 30,000 feet in the air, I am served chicken or beef in foil trays. Sitting around me are passengers with features like mine and compact bodies that have no quibble in economy seats. A white-haired couple on the, in the row ahead of me is speaking in Hakka. The woman complains about the tasteless meal. Mm-ho shit. Her guttural consonants resurrect my apple. My neck hairs bristle. My guts roil and I am suddenly unable to decide whether I am coming home or going home a homecoming or a ritual sacrifice. My flight grips onto every solitary hour until the wheels bump down. When I emerge from the thin shell of the 787 Dreamliner, the air is humid, laden with wet forest and pollution. My skin the first to recognize its birth home. Taoyuan International Airport is a marvel of glass and steel bilingual signage everywhere to welcome the English-speaking tourists and the illiterate diaspora. I have gone, come, home. The house is a shadow of its former self, cleaved in half and sold by unsentimental big uncle after Apo's funeral, my father says, tearing up. Baba is trying to preserve the remaining half as best he can. Darkened on one side by a massive partition that has bisected the building, the house feels small and awkward. The haunted staircase is gone, either torn down or walled off from view. Either way, it's no longer my concern. As Baba's health falters, so does his speech, but his Japanese, drilled into his generation by Japan's 50-year occupation of Taiwan, is still sound. With a shaky finger, he points proudly to the polished wood paneling around the living room. Hinoki, he enunciates, and explains how the mighty red cypress, once so dominant, is now endangered. He sighs unsteadily, and his gaze guides mine to the wall behind us. In framed portraits, high up on the living room wall to signify their exalted positions, my dead ancestors linger on so that Apo in her black wig and pursed lips manages, still, to frown down on me. I nod my acknowledgement, Apo ni hao. I take in the house, the house takes me in. Though it's been chopped in half, its insides gouged, this house stands firm. Shaken countlessly on a quake-prone island, there is but one crack along one wall 
a diagonal zag behind a pose image, traceable but not structural. This house, I realize, is also a survivor of chagrin. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think it was a different experience even just hearing you read it, but I remember the first time I read this piece was, it made me tear up. I was like, oh my gosh, I see so much of culture and just what I'm also concerned with my writing. So it was just a lot of resonation. So thank you for sharing that and for reading and for submitting it to PRISM. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm honored to be amongst the other great pieces in there. I just received my coffee and I'm really excited. It's beautiful. <laughs> I love it. I'm so happy to hear that. Amazing. Yeah. I, I was really interested in this as like piece of creative nonfiction. And I was wondering, I know you said you're working on a book. Is, is creative nonfiction your main form? Are, are you working in a lot of different genres or? I think my primary, uh, Zone would probably be creative nonfiction. Um, I also write personal essays. I have written short stories as well, but they they are you know, they tend to be based on uh, actual events. And actually, the book I'm working on, I'm kind of grappling with that as well because it does have to do with uh, it's based in my childhood um, of having grown up in a astronaut family. I think. Because so much time has passed, I'm, I'm having a tough time deciding whether to fictionalize it or to, because I can't remember all the details, or to call it memoir. <laughs> but I, I recently heard that really all writing is based on some nugget of nonfiction, <laughs> because, you know, where, where do these thoughts and ideas come from after all, right? So I guess I shouldn't fret about it too much, and we'll... If it ever comes to print, we'll let the booksellers deal with it. <laughs> I, I also, I loved a book I read a couple of years ago. And this is not to compare myself to, to such an awesome writer, but um, Ocean Wong's On Earth, We Are Briefly Gorgeous. And I believe he calls it autofiction, which might just be the perfect meld of creative nonfiction and fictionalized parts, right? Which I think we do have to extend our imagination when we're writing about something from the past and the unreliability of memory anyway. <laughs> I'm curious about, there's a bit of ancestral history or diaspora immigration aspects in, in the house. Is that something you visit a lot in your work? And if you could talk a little bit more about the themes that have inspired you. Right. Uh, so I mentioned that I left Taiwan when, when I was a child. But since then, I have visited over and over through the years um, and always to the same house that I was born into. It was an intergenerational household where one, two, three, four generations lived together at one point. And there were, you know, upwards of, I think, 30 in the house it was a big house and and it was definitely my grandparents house when they were both alive and even though you know I, I allude to the patriarchy my grandmother ran the house very much and she, but she was in in many ways a victim of that that system and like she was even more sexist in many ways than my grandfather was and she really did not like the girls and she called us all by our 
our numbers, basically, our, our birth order, basically. <laughs> so the boys had names, but the girls did not. So I guess it's something that's haunted me over the years. And I, I think being kind of first generation, but really generation 1.5, I sometimes call myself because even though I was a little girl when I came here, I really grew up in Canada with, you know, the relative freedoms of being in, in a, a more, you know, sexually equal culture. So I think it's always been this like cognitive dissonance that I can't quite marry up in, in my own self. Like there's this duality happening where there's a part of me that realizes that's complete BS and, you know, we can't live like that anymore. But then there's a part of me because it happened when I was so little, I think there it leaves a mark on you, right? And so I think because I was considered so much less than the boys, that's just continued to stay with me. And I think, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, it's something that's crept up in my in the themes of my writing, because I don't think I've quite gotten over it. And I suspect there are a lot of people who, who are in the same situation. <laughs> Yeah, I had a great creative writing instructor, actually from UBC, about 10 years ago, who said, write every day if you can, and write what you have to write, which of course can be interpreted two ways, right? What you must write, and also what you have uh, at your disposal to write. And I I often think, oh, I should, you know, just get on with other themes. <laughs> this is worn and it's these sort of ancestral themes or these I don't know these like migration stories immigrant stories they, they just seem after a while old hat but I realized when I talk to my friends about them they are interested and it is something that I think requires greater representation in you know diverse literature if we're hoping to go that way. I love how you mentioned right you must and what you have and I feel mm -hmm. like there's a melding of the two sometimes where what you have is also what you must write about. So thank you for sharing that. Something that really interested me about your piece, I was wondering about the length of it because it's almost like flash creative nonfiction or something like it's quite, it tells such a big story in a really short amount of space. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about like working in that form. Was that just kind of the length that it felt like it needed to be or was that a challenge for you at all? Yes, it was a, it was actually kind of uh, so I started the piece when I was uh in 2019 at the the Banff Emerging Writers Workshop um and one of the workshop sessions was to write a very compressed short story so like a flash piece and to make it as whole as possible and so that this is kind of what came out of that and to also be creative with the form and not be constrained and so that's why part of the piece feels a bit like a poem and there's definitely fragments in there as well but yes that's where it came from and I found it actually a wonderful exercise and I would definitely encourage anyone who's you know feeling a little um, blocked or anything overwhelmed which I think a lot of writers feel <laughs> To try something like that, where you give yourself either a hundred words or a thousand words and just say, write a whole story in that container. And in a way, the constraint is freeing because you, you just have this like thing that you have to 
to make and you know what it has to be sort of from the outset and so it actually makes it easier to to perform in some ways thank you for sharing that i was also wondering was there like a revision process involved with that did you go back revisit it change the form i know you talked about the form being already following like more poetic structure but i'm curious like did you go back and add extra form or take things away curious about that Mm -hmm. Oh, thanks for that question. Yes, I I did revise it many, many times. And I took out a whole bunch of dialogue, actually, which, although always, you know, interesting and sort of moves it along, I didn't think it fit in the end. And it felt kind of too open-ended, like, you know, the reader might want more. I had a dialogue between the narrator and the father, and it just felt too rushed. And so I took that out. There was also a lot more description about the my, my birth town. And again, it just felt a little cumbersome and maybe kind of opening doors that I couldn't close. <laughs> so really, I was kind of conscious of wanting to make this a really compressed piece. And I think it has energy because I compressed it so hard. And hopefully that it leaves a little bit of intrigue as well. And I it may form part of my book, actually. Yeah, it's interesting hearing you talk about that too, like thinking about expanding it to talk more about the town. But then I think because you focused so closely on the house, like that that worked as a container as well for the piece. Like we feel really contained in that space and it allows you to like go deep, deeply into that space. Yes, thank you. I'm glad that came across. <laughs> because yes, when I brought it out into the street and, you know, my walking around it and then describing all the things and smells, I thought that was actually quite intriguing, like to bring in all the senses that we're always taught to bring in all the senses. Um, but it just kind of was no longer the house. It was the street. It was the market. <laughs> it was everything else. Um, yes. And I really wanted to talk about what it feels like to go home to a home that really no longer feels like one and especially one that has been altered so much um, which is kind of hopefully metaphorical for how it feels when we leave a place and even if it's the same by the time we return it's really changed that's lovely thank you I'm curious how you chose that did you really narrow in on the core ideas or themes of your piece when you're revising. So for instance, you said like you took away the dialogue, you took away the outside and you wanted to keep it contained in a location to dive deep into it. So I'm wondering, was it more of like instinctual subconscious thing or was it more of like a conscious, I'm going to take these away? Or did you kind of move things around and go like, actually, I think this doesn't work as well. I'm curious how that process looked like for you. I think maybe the title, when I found the title, it helped because initially it didn't have a title. And then I, I think the first title that I did come up with was Going, Coming Home, which was very, again, very open-ended. And then I realized that was like too much <laughs> for, for that piece. And then I realized that really what I wanted to talk about was the place that, that I was born into and now feels so different upon return. And it's been so altered and what still haunts me there. And so the Apo part, my grandmother's presence, 
being represented by these like really stark photographs that were still on the wall. Yeah, that continued to haunt me. So I wanted to zone in on that. But yeah, I guess overall, I think it the process was just distilling down to the like to the essence of to be in a place like that again. I was also wondering about I guess your your journey as a writer and I know you said you work as a technical writer and I'm very curious about people who sort of work in writing for their day job and then they're also doing creative writing outside of that and yeah I'd just love to hear more about kind of how your journey has been as a writer. Oh <laughs> that's a that's a, a, a meandering answer that I have. So basically, I have been working full time for, for decades, really. And then when the pandemic hit, I started doing contract work from home. I'm really fortunate to be able to do that. Um, I'm now freelancing. And so when I'm on contract, it's, it's pretty full on and I can't switch my brain's like it, it's a very different way to write. So technical writing is just very straightforward style, right? Because you need it to be like what we were talking about manuals and technical reports and those kinds of things is what I what I work on. And so you can imagine that that's a very discreet thing. And there's an introduction, there's a conclusion and the stuff in between. And usually there's a, a very set deadline where you Here's here's what's expected, 10 pages deliverable on such and such a date. The creative writing is 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 so so opposite to that. I mean, yes, I have to sit down and also look at a, a screen and, and think, but it's super freeing, but it's also it freaks me out sometimes <laughs> because I realize there's nobody waiting for my book. There is no deliverable deadline. Um, it's all open-ended and it's all you know up to me. And so that's, it's super daunting. Uh, and also I find that I cannot switch between the two on the same day. One is like a very analytical process, you know, what's clear, what's not clear. You just excise the stuff that's unclear or rewrite it. With creative writing, it's, it's just, you have to let your imagination loose. And so it's not about being analytical so much. Until you get to the revision process. And as I'm finding out, because I finished my, my manuscript now, I'm, I'm in the revision process. I'm recognizing that actually revisioning is a bunch of decision making. <laughs> That's all, like not all it is, but a lot of it is just trying to figure out what belongs, what doesn't belong. And that is the decision making, right? So I don't know, maybe, maybe revisioning is closer to technical writing. I'm not sure. <laughs> But to answer your question, I think the two are so distinct that I can't do them on the same day. It's really insightful, though, the fact that you've kind of realized that distilling what's in analytical writing helps with the revision process in fiction writing. That's really cool to think about as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think it helps me to separate it out because often when I'm doing technical writing, it's based on other people's uh, reports and work. So what I'm doing is massaging it into something, you know, more more readable. And so in a way, when I look at my own manuscript, I have that training to be able to give myself a bit of distance and say, okay, this is this is a draft. I'm just going to massage it better into a better form. I was wondering, uh, as you know, our IBPOC submissions are open. I'm wondering if you have any advice for people who are submitting to the issue 
Any insights? I would encourage everyone with a piece that they're relatively happy with to submit because I think by putting your work out there, even if it's even if it's not accepted this time, I think it's that little pat on your own back <laughs> for like getting a piece done. And it's also a fir- affirmation that you're what you're doing is worthwhile. And yeah, it kind of completes it completes the whole process because I think unless we're journaling, we are writing for a reader. And so that's the only way to get it read <laughs> is to try and submit. So, and Prism, I have to say, produces amazing work. And so if you were lucky enough to be accepted, I think you'll feel awesome. <laughs> so that's, a, I think, good enough incentive to try and, and uh, submit. Totally. And it's, uh, this issue is free to submit too as well. So yeah, there's, there's nothing to lose with putting yourself out there. And we also wanted to ask about, you, you know, what you're working on now. And it sounds like you, you said you finished your manuscript, which is huge. Congratulations on that. And um, yeah, I'd love to hear more about kind of what your experience has been like with the, with working on that manuscript. Now you're revising. Are you, have you started kind of talking to, to agents, publishers, that kind of thing? No, I haven't yet. I've worked with a couple of mentors on my manuscript, and I think it's getting pretty close, or that that's the positive feedback I'm getting. So, But there are certainly some areas that still need some work, including that it's probably too short at this point. <laughs> it's about 50,000 words, which uh, I don't know. I mean, I've read some beautiful, concise works as well, so I'm I'm kind of balking at the suggestion that it's too short (laughs) I think it just should be what it needs to be but having said that I am undergoing uh, I guess this is my third big revision like going from beginning through to the end um, and checking for themes and so on I'm actually having a bit of trouble figuring out how how best to end it and I think that's the problem of maybe many first time uh, <laughs> writers, or I, I don't know, I've been writing this book for a long time too. So um, maybe it's also hard to just let it go. But I I have kind of set myself a, a deadline since there are no external deadlines at this point um, of finishing it by the beginning of next year and start pitching it. Yeah. And I think having, oh, another plug for submitting work to prism and other you know lit journals is that if you build up some literary credentials like publication credentials i think it's easier to try and land uh, an agent so yeah i think that will help my cv <laughs> i'm hoping to pitch next year that's what i'm oh no now that i've said it it's gonna... <laughs> no that's <laughs> so exciting that's exciting yeah <laughs> Well, we'll yeah. check in with you next year. Do like a follow-up episode. <laughs> yeah, right? Maybe the accountability episode. <laughs> I could turn the mic over to both of you too. <laughs> yeah, that's so exciting. I'm I'm really excited to to read it one day. And and also what you were saying about the length too, from short piece in prison, like it's it's clear that you're able to write in that kind of concise but still really powerful way. Um 
And I feel like form is like shifting a lot with books anyway. Like there are some really cool smaller books for sure. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. I think so too. Well, thank you so much, Wiley, for joining us. It was so great to talk to you about this piece and about your book. And yeah, yeah. just great to, to connect with you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you both. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to Prism Presents on CITR 101.9 FM. That was an interview with the writer Wiley Ho. We'll be right back with another insightful conversation. But first, a quick ad break. You want to change the state of the world? But instead you keep buying material goods to satisfy whatever desire you have in that very moment? Me too. But now you can do both! Brock Shop and Community Thrift is a local vintage shop that fulfills your 1970s all-chic fantasy while also supporting at-risk people through their compassionate and supportive work training program. All of their profits go to the PHS Community Services Society to support ongoing health care, harm reduction, and health promotion projects in Vancouver and Victoria. So stop by their two locations, Community Unisex on West Hastings or Community Frock Shop on Corral Street. And if you know any other local businesses that deserve recognition for their generous business practices or their contributions to the community, please DM us on Instagram at CITR and Discorder because we would love to spotlight them. Because hey, if you can't stop buying, you might as well start supporting. Do you love being caffeinated? And do you hate that greedy, soulless international conglomerates are succeeding in the cutthroat world of coffee? Sounds like local coffee roasters Trek Coffee is for you. Trek Coffee is 100% indigenous and military veteran owned and operated. Let's keep small businesses thriving. Stop by Sunshine Convenience on 4th, the Super Value on Commercial, or Grocery Checkout in the Nest to pick up some Trek Coffee today. You are invited to volunteer for Spacesisum Garden. Get away from the rat race. Get back to the land. Heal. Reconnect with yourself. Touch grass. Find a quiet place among the plants and find a quiet place inside yourself. Check us out on Facebook at Indigenous Garden UBC Farm. Or visit the Swissessum Indigenous Garden located at UBC Farm just off of Ross Road. Let's see here. Blend equal parts science and stories. Add a few shakes of music and soundscape and wrap it all up in a big question. How can we see this more than human world in a new light and take part in shaping a healthy Anthropocene? Catch Future Ecologies every Sunday at 8 a.m. on CITR.
Welcome back. Now we're excited to share our conversation with writer JT Mariyama. Hi, I'm JT Mariyama. I am a writer. Um, I'm from Forest Cove, Oregon. I'm currently going to Portland State University in Portland, Oregon, um, studying fiction. Um, I mainly work with fiction, but I sometimes go into other genres. I go by they, them pronouns. And yeah, this is my first publication, which is really cool. No way. Your first publication yeah. is in prison. That's so impressive. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I'm a bit jealous. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Wow. I would not, from reading your piece, I would not think that that was your, your first publication. Oh, thank you so much. Amazing. Well, speaking of your piece that was published in Prism, could you read us an excerpt from The Lemon and the Dress? Okay, so I'm picking something kind of like in the middle beginning. In the distance, he saw a group of trees and dense bushery on the other side of a creek, alongside an old abandoned house with a porch and a rocking chair. A couple of lemon trees grew beside the house, the lemons all colorful and plump. Curious, he wandered over a bridge to the lemon trees. Each lemon hung like a yellow bell, wings wraps, marigold bats, sunsetrine earrings. Some were sleek and smooth, some bumpy and contorted. All beautiful. It was like standing under bulbs of lights, under yellow ornaments. They breathed and glowed, hummed and sang, made his heart feel as full and fleshy as a fruit. He felt a sort of ecstasy, a sort of rejuvenation. It was a strange sight. Lemons grew ripest in winter, yet here they were in mid-June, the lemons, the brightest things he could see. He was delighted by the lemons, their yellowness, their sleek skin, their temperament. They were pleasant in that they simply existed as baubles of yellow hanging from a tree, letting their glistening glow and self float above the ground. He was tempted by them too, just like he was tempted by the clothes. Little yellow bells chiming, ringing sweet in his ears. The lemons were themselves, and Seth wanted to be a self, to no longer feign who he was. He looked at the ground, on the bed of grass with a fallen lemon, sleek and bruised. He knelt to inspect it. It was like a sleeping bird, wings wrapped in itself. Carefully, he slipped his fingers around the fruit, the sleekness kissing his skin. He rubbed the skin and thought back to the dress. He thought about Ray showing him pieces of clothing, the kind gesture. He dug his fingernails into the skin, acidic juice biting under his fingernail. Then he dragged the thick layer of skin, strands of net-like white, sticking to the edges until it shipped off and landed onto the grass, curled in a sleep, a lemon shedding. Seth ventured back to the clothing shop. He flew up back the stairs, zipped down the hall and entered the dressing room. Shutting the door, he planted his back against it. His breathing startled him, his heart pulsed. Sugar venom surged throughout his veins. He shed the lemon and a wave of realization flew over him. He placed his hand over his heart, eyes tilted and tired but lulled with happiness. He could shed this body and become another. There's no more than a robe that one could strip and play with. He walked over to the mirror and looked at himself, the facial hair, the bump like a bulging root on his throat. He looked to, his, to the side, his reflection disappearing. He pinned the tips of his fingers around an invisible thread sticking out along the hairline and forehead and pulled. Like a transparent sheath of fabric glistening with web-like sparks and the thread opens like a zipper, shedding this body and said hello. Thank you so much. That was beautiful. Such a lovely reading. 
Yeah, so I was curious when you first became interested in writing. Yeah, I feel like the longest time, I guess, I guess always been, I think the first time I started writing was like in the second grade, I think. Um, I've always been a very quiet, observant person, so I've always in my head, but I would just write and create things on paper. And then I've just been writing ever since. Amazing. And what what has your experience been like as this was is your first published piece? Have have you kind of just started submitting or is this like an ongoing process for you? Right now I'm in grad school in undergrad. Uh, my professors encourage students to submit, but I never found myself submitting either because I didn't like what I wrote or I didn't really like it or I didn't feel like it was good enough. What is what I mean for publishing or like I feel like I didn't have like a completed body work whenever I wrote, so I never submitted. So it's not actually until like this year I felt like I was submitting regularly. I've submitted maybe 10 or 15 times. Most, most of them are rejections, which is totally fine. But um, yeah, it's pretty recently I got into submitting stuff. And so could you tell us a bit more about this piece, The Lemon and the Dress, and, and how it came to be? Yeah, where should I start? Because this might take a while. Well, I guess for one thing, this story is a part of a collection of three short stories, which was a part of my, I guess, thesis or capstone project for my undergrad at Pacific University in Oregon. And I had those stories kind of like, they're all pretty different content wise, but I, they're kind of, I wanted to connect them thematically. So I kind of wanted these pieces to speak to each other, even though they're not exactly the same content wise, but, um, in terms of making this story, I think like the main thing that kind of got me writing this story was like walking in the neighborhood, like in the summer. And like, I would walk along the street and on the side of the street, there are a bunch of fruit trees. And I kept on looking at that. And there was like an orange bike I saw there. And it was just like such full of life on that, on that um, little driveway. And so I was thinking about that on my mind. This was before my senior year in undergrad. And then I was also thinking about clothes and like in the back of my mind. And I guess I just had this like collection of various things that slowly came together. I was thinking about fruit and clothes and gender. And that kind of helped create this story, I guess. So, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of um, very vivid imagery in your story, which I was really drawn to when I first read it. So. Thank you for sharing how that originated for you. And I also, um, while reading it, I, I've found that it moved really beautifully between dream and reality. Is that something you've always been drawn to? Or are there other themes that you often come back to in your work? Yeah, that's such a great question. Yeah, I think dreams, I haven't written like a lot about dreams, but it's always been on my mind um, and kind of like, navigating between multiple kind of spaces or realities and kind of occupying multiple spaces. I kind of, I, yeah, I guess just like, kind of like, yeah, na navigating more than two or more spaces at once or like some sort of like fragmentary themes uh, have always interested me. And I'm also inspired by some of the dreams that I have, but I haven't really written anything about my actual dreams, but. Would you be able to tell us a bit more about the, I guess, other two stories that make up this collection like this sounds like a really cool project that you've been working on yeah like I said I'm in grad school right now my first term at Portland State but for my undergrad 
I was at Pacific University in Oregon and I did, we had like, you know, we wrote our own creative works. And so I, did, I decided to do short stories. But the first short story was called Sakama Drops, which was based, it's based off a of Japanese candy. Um, I don't think it's sold in stores and stuff anymore, at least I don't think here or Japan, but it's like this metal can with like hard candies inside. And it was in my closet for like years. And I opened the closet one time and saw it there. I was like, that kind of brought a lot of memories. And so that story kind of inspired like Japanese identity and navigating that. Um, and it's from the perspective of a young child. So I think they're about, I think six is what I made their age, I think around that age. And throughout the story, they kind of try to share the candy with other people. It also explores um, the relationship between the character and the mother. And then the last short story called Kamisuki, which means like paper making, like in Japanese. And that one went through a lot of stages. It was very different from when I first started it, but that one was about, it's focusing like a lot on paper, immigration, uh, intergenerational trauma. And one of the ways I kind of connected the stories is to like seasons in time. So like the first story based in spring, second one's based in summer, Glimmer in the Dress. The last one's based in fall. So while they're, like I mentioned before, they're not very similar content-wise, but thematically I wanted to connect to them. And that's kind of one of the ways I did that. That sounds really cool. Kind of reminds me of like Ali Smith's seasons, like quartet thing. That's really cool. Thank you so much. Yeah, I love all the themes in there. Yeah, for sure. And I was wondering if you talk a little bit more about what your writing practice looks like usually. I know you touched on it a bit before, but if you kind of could expand on that a little bit more. Yeah, I think I like to think of like maybe certain images or objects, whether or not they're like tangible or not like certain like images or pieces or objects that for some reason are speaking to me. And then I try to see connections to other types of things that I might relate to. And then I kind of create a story out of that or something. I tend to write, like in terms of the, my writing process, I would say I write in like chunks, I would say, or like whatever comes to mind first and then try to figure out how they all connect together later on. I haven't played with form as much as I would have, would like to, but um, I'm trying to think about how I can use form in innovative ways or ways I haven't done before. Yeah, you want, for one of the short stories, you mentioned that it changed a lot. And I was wondering what your revision process looks like. I know that's something that I always find really hard, especially being in a master's program. It's like a lot of times I'm writing things for class and then I never come back to them. Or I have like, you know, it's been workshops, so I have lots of ideas, but I don't know where to start. Uh, so how did you kind of approach that? Yeah, that's definitely something I struggle with because oftentimes when I write something, I never go back to it. And so I never really feel like I complete anything. Yeah, actually, even for the lemon and the dress, there was a lot of revisions. And like I said, this was part of a thesis. So I had a, like an advisor I worked with and another student. So we're like constantly kind of negotiating and revising. So that went through like so many revisions. But um, yeah, for the last story, I think that one changed a lot in terms of like plots and like setting and things like that. I think the first version focused a lot on a lot on like like houses and like change in houses over the course of the character the main character's life and a little bit about the main character's and mother's relationship. And as I was I I wrote that story not sure knowing where I was going with it. I was just kind of going along and see if I would find something, but I didn't really. <laughs> and then another 
image that or another thing that came to my mind was this sort of house I guess made out of paper or something like that which is where this title Kamisuki comes kind of coming from um, and then it's more evolutionized into a story about the relationship between the main character and the mother and the story behind the mother's immigration which the main character doesn't really know about and so there's like conflict and tension between them um, so I think it and that story at least it transitioned more into their relationship than before yeah no that sounds really amazing thank you for sharing that I'm curious in terms of like revision as well like how you keep yourself accountable and keep working on the same piece despite you know like it probably is like the 13th time you looked at it and you're like oh no not again but like how do you do you have any advice for like or how you approach that looking at that same piece again with like maybe fresh eyes almost yeah. Um, yeah, definitely revision has always been the biggest struggle for me. So it's it's still something I'm figuring out what works best and how to keep on working on things. I think there are times where like I may work on something and it really is something that I don't really want to work on anymore. So I kind of just leave it there. I think it's always been helpful. I, yeah, just, I guess collaborative work has always been helpful in keeping me accountable. So working in groups has always been nice. I think... I guess like maybe like workshopping your piece to a point or like whatever story you have and then just set it aside and not think about it for a bit and kind of go back to it another time and see maybe some sort of changes you might want to pursue with that or like maybe you notice things that you didn't notice before. That's kind of helpful. Yeah, so like group work and then put it aside. Yeah, I don't know. I, I will say it's still something I'm figuring out and learning. Yeah, I definitely relate to that. I was also wondering about like as someone who I, I'm someone who writes a lot about identity as well, but often from like a creative nonfiction lens. And what what's your experience like working with like topics of identity? It sounds like, you know, gender identity, racial identity, sort of hybridity as well, potentially in, in short fiction. Like, yeah, I would just be interested to hear you talk a bit about that. Yeah, definitely identity has been like the main thing I like to explore. Like, yeah, gender identity, cultural, racial identity. And I actually started writing more nonfiction when I first started writing. And I do like nonfiction, but I realized I kind of like working with fiction more. But I guess I find myself, it, it, it can be kind of hard sometimes because, you know, you are kind of entering personal touchy stuff. So sometimes I question, like, should I put this out into the world? But um, part of me is like, I, if I don't write about it, I, I always feel like a nug or like a like a tug pulling at me saying like, hey, you need to write this because it's just the way I want to express the way I feel is through writing. And if I can explore identity in writing, I, I really want to do that, even if it may be difficult to share that with other people. I feel the same. And, and sometimes sometimes it's really freeing to explore it in fiction and not have it feel like, oh, this is, you know, perfectly true and 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 obviously like as Vivian was talking about like your piece in prism uses so much kind of surreal interesting like blending of dream and reality and I think that's such an interesting way to explore these topics and in a way that doesn't have to feel like perfectly fact or like an opinion or a commentary piece or something yeah I also really resonate with like the question of exploring identity even in terms of what is possible to be shared. I, yeah, for sure. Some of the family history I'm working with, I wonder, I'm like, should I share this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. But then it's like that's how I contextualize where I am. And so, yeah, I agree with what you're saying for sure. Yeah, definitely. So um, this is more of like a question, a general question, but like, do you have any, And you, as you know, we have the BIPOC issue that's currently open. Do you have any advice for people submitting to the BIPOC issue in general or just submitting to places in general and anyone who's listening kind of advice for that? Yeah, I mean, I will say like, I'm definitely just in general, I'm kind of, I'm still kind of new to everything in terms of like submitting regularly. I'm still kind of new to it. I recently, recently started doing it this year. I would say like not being afraid to submit because I think I mean, I think in general, it can be scary for anyone to submit because people are reading your work and that's very, you know, you're, people are engaging with your own personal thoughts and stuff. But um, I think especially for BIPOC writers or women writers or queer writers, it can be even more daunting. I would say not being afraid to submit and it's okay to like feel unsure or uncertain or self-conscious. Um, but, you know, your your perspective, your words, your experience are important for the world and people would love to hear your experiences. Yeah, and I think it's great for people to hear, like, you're new to submitting and, and obviously have received many rejections, as we all have, if anyone's <laughs> yeah. ever tried their hand at submitting. Um, the, the rejections definitely outweigh the, the acceptances. But to, yeah. to know that, you know, it's not like PRISM is only publishing people with a huge track record of being in all these impressive places or anything like it's it's really it's really on the writing and the fit of the journal as we've kind of talked about before so yeah mm-hmm. i think that's very inspiring yeah. like your story is inspiring thank you so much we were also wondering what you're kind of working on now or what's next for you or uh, have you started working on your thesis for your masters yeah so right now i yeah, at Portland State University. I started a little over a month ago, I think. Um, so I'm still, it's a new experience going to a new uh, school. But um, I, so right now I'm taking two classes, one with, which is a work, or three classes, but one's a workshop. So one thing that's been on my mind a lot is like bees and honey and summer. When I was four years old, I think, or five, I was, it's one of my earliest memories as a human being when I was a child. It was kind of, kind of a wild thing. When I was younger, around that age, in our front yard, there was like a swarm of yellow jackets just flying around in our front yard, which if I saw that now, I would be very terrified. But one of my oldest sisters was out there sitting down, just smacking these bees, like swatting at them. My dad was mowing the lawn and little or five-year-old myself decided, oh, I want to go swat the bees too. <laughs> so I so I went over to my sister and sat down and like swat the bees. And immediately I got stung on the lips by the uh, yellow jacket, which was one of the worst pains I've ever experienced in my life. But my sister didn't get stung, so I don't know what happened there. But anyway, the point is, is that I've been really thinking about that moment that I've experienced. It's like, like I said, one of the earliest memories I've had as a I have as a child that I can remember. And one thing I do a lot is that I buy my lips a lot. And it's like a nervous habit that I have. And I like peel off the skin off my lips a lot. And I'll, like, I'll put like ointment or some sort of like chapstick or healing um, object, but I end up just biting it anyway. So I, I, it undoes the 
healing process altogether. Doesn't make sense, but I was really thinking about like the significance of that moment and why I kind of play with my lips a lot. And yeah, the intersection of all these bees and honey, anxiety, lips. And I was also interested how that relates with gender and also like just like the ecological destruction in general, but especially of like bees and stuff and how they're dying and like the destruction of ecosystems and also seeing how that relates to like destruction of the body. This is a lot I just explained, but that's kind of what I'm exploring right now. And this is the first time I've kind of played with form. So I have it in like chunks and it's quite fragmented in comparison, in terms of form and comparison to like previous works, but that's what I'm doing now. Yeah. I look forward to reading that fragmentary piece. It sounds really cool. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time, JT, and just, yeah, it was really inspiring talking to you as well. So look forward to reading your future projects. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. It was really great. I loved all your questions and your presence, and yeah, it was was wonderful. Thank you so much. You're listening to Prison Presents on CITR 101.9 FM. That was an interview with the writer JT Mariyama. If you're interested in submitting to the IBPOC issue of PRISM, check out our website at prismmagazine.ca. Thank you so much for listening. We've been your hosts, Vivian Lee and Sophia Osborne. Join us next time for more readings and conversations with inspiring writers. Music.